1 Corinthians chapter 10 kind of brings us to a spot in Scripture where Paul has taken several chapters to teach one truth. And that truth is um, that we have been given freedom in Christ, but we are responsible for how we use that freedom. And uh, the same parallel we could think of probably in things that go on in our, in our local uh, country at this point is, you know, we are, many people are expressing their freedom to own and to use guns at their will. But with freedom, there's always a responsibility that goes on with that freedom. And so what Paul is doing here is in the same way that, that we might do with our own families. We talk about whether it's gun safety or the way that we use our vehicles or whatever it is. Any freedom that we get, there's constraints not to hold people back, but also but to, to deal with the fact that having those freedoms brings a great responsibility. And our freedoms in Christ come with a huge responsibility because we represent the Lord. We represent Jesus Christ himself in the world that we live in. And so how we use our freedom says a lot about who he is. So we have to be very careful about that. So in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, verse 27, Paul has been speaking concerning our freedoms as believers. And he finished the last chapter in verse 27 by saying that he wanted to live his Christian life like a race. And it is a race, this race of faith that we're in. And we compete not for a, a reward that will fade or a reward that will put somewhere and will collect dust, but for a reward that is eternal. And so because we're competing for a reward that does not fade, we want to make sure that we win the thing and that we're able to obtain it for the glory of God. And so Paul has said here he wanted to compete in a way as to win the reward. And in order to do so, he in verse 27 says he disciplines his body and brings it into subjection, lest when he has preached or told others about the name of Jesus, he himself would become disqualified. And so Paul gave us examples from the Old Testament of Israel of how we can become disqualified. We can be saved, but we can waste our testimony. And the, he gives the Old Testament example of Israel. And what we found last week in the beginning part of chapter 10, verse 1 through 12 and 13 uh, we found that though God did amazing things to deliver them from the Egyptians, to deliver them from the land of slavery and bondage, they lusted for things that weren't in God's plan for them. God gave them freedom, and they used their freedom to want things that would harm them. And so God, because of that, had to basically take his hand and say, you know what, I cannot bless sin. I cannot bless you guys if you're going to want things that I don't have for you. And because they wanted things that he didn't have for them, and of course he wasn't giving them to him, they started to complain against the God who delivered them from slavery. And we do that. We, we despise the commandments of the Lord, and we want something for ourselves that God doesn't have for us, and when he doesn't give it to us, we, like a little two-year-old, start to whine and complain, and that complaining leads to disobedience, just like in the life of my little daughter. We tell her, no, you can't have that, and then she starts throwing a fit. Well, throwing the fit isn't the problem, but it leads to other things. When we don't give her what she wants, she goes and does it anyway. And because of that, we have to punish disobedience because we are not just saying you can't have that for the sake of having control over her. We're trying to protect her by putting fences around her to keep her away from things that not only we don't want for her, but things that will harm her ultimately. And so God was doing this for the people of Israel. 
But because they longed for things that God didn't want for them, they eventually disobeyed God's commands to get them and directly disobeyed His will for their lives. And any times we, we disobey God, we're coming out from under the protection and the blessing of God. And so something that we forget is when we do this in our relationship with God, our sin separates us from Him. And, and God cannot and will not bless disobedience. He won't bless sinful lifestyles. He can't. It's not in His character. And for those who continue in sin, God will take His hand off of their life and give them over to the thing that they chose over him, and we do that sometimes. And so their sin led to them dying in the wilderness. So when they came out of Egypt, God brought them through the Red Sea, and they experienced this miraculous deliverance. Not only that, but when their enemies chased them across the Red Sea, as on dry land, once Israel got through to the other side, God said, You know what? I'm going to let the water fall. And then the water fell back to where it was and its place in the sea. And it crushed, it destroyed it, uh, the Egyptians who were pursuing Israel. So not only did God deliver them from slavery, but he actually judged those who placed them in slavery. And so that was God's hand of blessing on their life. So they all experienced that. They all saw it. And then they got into the, the wilderness and God provided bread from heaven. With the dew of the earth, they'd get up in the morning and they gather this manna. They called it manna, which means what is it? But God called it bread from heaven. He told them, this is going to be your sustenance. I'm going to bring you through this desert into a place of blessing. And they despised the bread from heaven. And because of that, they started to grumble and complain until finally the Lord said, you know what? I'll give you some meat. And he brought a big stinking honking amount of quail into the land. And he said, not only will I give you meat, but I'll give it to you till you can't stand it anymore. You want something that I don't have for you? I'll give it all to you that you want. And they ate as much as they could until it was coming out of their nostrils, is what scripture says. They despise that even. And so sometimes we just need to be content with what God provides because the other thing may not be the blessing that we think. And so they saw all of these miraculous things, but their sin led, because they continued to despise the things of the Lord, it led to them dying in the wilderness. He said, for this whole generation that didn't trust me, I'm going to leave you in the wilderness. You're never going to enter into the land of promise. And that whole generation, 40 years, they wandered in the desert. It was like an 11-day journey. They could have went straight there. But because they didn't obey the Lord and trust Him, they wandered around in circles, not having any direction, until that generation that disobeyed Him died in the wilderness. They didn't obtain the promise. They didn't obtain God's blessing simply because they wanted things in their lives that he wasn't willing to give them. So in verse 11 and 12 of uh, this chapter, Paul goes on to explain that these very real incidents that occurred in Israel uh, were there, not just because they happened, but then the Holy Spirit preserved them, put them in scripture for us so that we could learn from their example, from their failure. And he said, it was for our admonition, verse 11 says. It says, um, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. So they happened to them as examples of what disobedience and, and despising the, the things that the Lord will do, but also as an admonition. And the word admonition actually means, because I don't use that in my everyday words, 
Um, admonition actually means warning or learning. It means to teach or to train by the word of mouth. So when your parents, when you were younger, would teach you something by word of mouth, they were admonishing you. They were training you. They were leading you so that you would not depart from those ways when you would grow older. But in this case, the word of mouth that we're talking about is actually the word of God's mouth. He's speaking directly to us through this example of the Old Testament Israelites. And so he says, notice in verse 12, he says, Let him who stands or who thinks he stands take heed in order to avoid falling. So remember, he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's saying, if Old Testament Israel, who saw all these miraculous things, who were delivered from the land of slavery physically, God was, he, they were disqualified because they were drawn away from things that God didn't have for them. How much more is this the case for us as we've been delivered spiritually from the kingdom of darkness? We've had our eyes open to the truth. Jesus Christ has paid it all for our salvation. And so we could very easily be just like Old Testament Israel and desire things that God doesn't have for us. We can despise the bread from heaven, which for us is not a daily provision for food, but it's a daily provision for our salvation as the bread from heaven really is Jesus Christ. We can despise his commandments, his teaching, and because of that, we'll wander around trying to fulfill our appetites with other things that the world has to offer. When you despise good food, you're going to eat junk. When you despise the broccoli, you're going to eat the donut. You know, it's, it's that simple, but we overcomplicate it. We start desiring things that the Lord doesn't have for us because we simply don't consider what he says is good. And what he says is good is what's good. And so he says there, let him who thinks he stands, those who think that there's something, take heed. And that word is like when you walk behind a horse and its ear goes and turns around and hears you, takes notice of you, pays close attention to you because it's looking for something that's going to harm it or that it can't see. And so in the same case, we are to lean in, we're to pay, pay close attention to what God is going to teach us through this lesson in order that we can avoid falling. We don't have to learn from experience. We can learn from the past. The idea here means to avoid being disqualified from being rewarded for how you complete this race of faith. So Israel had seen God's hand of blessing on them. They saw his deliverance. They knew that God chose them as his special people. That can make you think pretty highly of yourself, right? God chose me. I'm his. He delivered me. Wow, he must have picked me because I'm something great. And because of that, they thought, because of those things, that they were safe. God chose me, so I'm good. I can do whatever I want. They thought no one could touch them. They were unable to fall. And in some ways, they were correct because God didn't deliver them by their hand. He delivered them by his deliverance. It was his hand that went before them. It was his voice that spoke and made the waters part so they could be delivered. It was his hand of power that allowed the water to drown the Egyptians, their enemies. But there's an enemy that we all have that all too often we don't consider to be an enemy. Do you know who that enemy is? It's not the enemy without. It's the enemy within. It's our flesh. We're never able to rid ourselves of our stinking, sinful flesh until death separates us but until then we are to battle the flesh daily because there are things within our flesh that want things that the spirit does not want for us 
There are things that we want, things that might even be okay, not sinful things, that will draw our affections away from God. So the question is, what are those? Well, in Israel, they, they had things, they had desires that God didn't have for them. And in this case, we look at how we can be drawn away. We can be enticed. We can be enticed by things that, that are lusts, things that are deep within our hearts that we're not even aware of. In James chapter 1, verse 14, the, the, um, James writes this in verse 14. He says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin is not something to be played or toyed with. It's something that ultimately, if you hang on to it, will drag you to your death. And so, uh, and then there in verse 13, I'm kind of reading it backwards, I realize that, but I want to start with the end result, and then I want to go to the causation. In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Many people go, well, God allowed this thing into my life, and so I can't help it. But what God's word says is God doesn't tempt anyone. He does allow certain things to happen in your life, and he allows them in measured amounts, but he doesn't allow anything that we can't escape. And we're going to see that in uh, I think we actually read that last week. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I was tempted by God. But then there in verse 12, notice that it's your own desires that draw you away or entice you from the things of God. And so, uh, question time. If it's our own desires, if it's our own lusts, things within us, things that we desire from our hearts, that draw us away from the things of God and cause us to despise the things of God, let me ask you, let's do an assessment here. You don't have to answer out loud. What do you desire? What's in the forefront of your mind? What's most important to you? What takes highest priority in your life when the rubber meets the road? Who or what gets your primary affection, time, money, and strength? What... Or who consumes your thoughts and your thought patterns? Take some time, think through those questions, and answer them honestly. Honest assessment will get you good results. Does your answer end up being people, relationships, places, or things that are not God? If your answer is yes, then those very things that you hold on to, that take number one priority, those are the traps that Satan will use in your life. Those are your Achilles heel. Those desires are the very things that will ensnare you and cause you to despise the things of the Lord when you don't realize it. Those are your weak points. And if you have weak points, then you need someone to deliver you, right? The Bible teaches that whatever you thought of, that thing that could draw you away from the Lord, is something that we should not call, that's just my preference, we should call it an idol. An idol is something that you give your time, your talents, your affections, your strength, your heart, soul, mind, and strength to. It's what you serve. You think that it serves you. You think that it's something that you need that will help you, but it's ultimately something that you serve. 
So we have to be taking honest inventory of that. And it's funny because what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? He said, this is the greatest commandment when he was asked. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he said, and the second one is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself, as you love yourself. But the first one there, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, here's the reality. If you're not loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will love something else with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whether it's a relationship, whether it's something that you own, whether it's something that you greatly treasure, whatever it might be. It might be something as simple as family. Family is not a bad thing, but if you love it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God is second, then it's an idol. It could be your vehicle. It could be your favorite gun. It could be a toy truck for a little kid. It could be anything. And so what the Lord says is, be careful what you desire more than me, because that's what's going to be what trips you up. If you desire anything, place, a position at work, a person, a relationship, more than you desire God's presence in your life, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 13 says this, those desires will lure you away from God and it'll be a slow fade. It'll happen so slow you won't even notice it. If it's not, it's, it's not an if that happens, it's when that will happen. Israel's desires as individuals and as a nation robbed them of God's blessing simply because they wouldn't say no to Satan's big three temptations. It's always the same pattern. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the desire to look good, the desire to feel good, that's a big one, right? And the desire to be good in the eyes of men. And this is all apart from God. Do you want to miss out on God's presence and blessing in your life just because you won't say no to what he has told you? This is sin. This is something that will draw you away. Do you want to miss out on God's blessing and his presence in your life just because you, you want something that he says will harm and eventually kill you? It's playing with fire. And so verse 14 says this. This is his direct instruction back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee it. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Flee also youthful lusts. Those are the things that you desire. He says, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. He's speaking to those in the Corinthian church who think that they're wise. When he says, I speak to you as to wise men, he's kind of being sarcastic. He already sees that they're ensnared by their lustful desires. And so he says, I speak to you as to wise men. But what he's saying is, take heed, you wise men, lest you think you stand and then you end up falling, become disqualified. Verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of one bread. And he's going to talk about, he's looking at, what do you serve? What do you eat? What is, what is it that you uh, are sustained upon? He says, we, though many in the body of Christ, are one bread and one body. See, in that culture, to eat something with someone else meant to partake of the same nutrients and in a way become one together. So they wouldn't eat with just anybody. They would only eat with Jews at the time. 
And it's because to have fellowship means to be, become a partaker and you became one with them because you ate the same bread. And so he says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In that culture, in the way of their sacrificial system, when they would take an offering, they wouldn't make an offering or a sacrifice of praise, they would offer up their strength. And for their strength, it would be something that they grew or something that they uh, grew up like an animal and they would kill it. They would sacrifice it on the altar. They would make a fellowship offering. That fellowship offering would be eaten by the one who offered it. There would be a portion that the offerers would eat, the worshipers. Then there would be the priest. He would get a portion of it to eat with them. And then there would be a portion that would be consumed on the altar. And the picture was that God was consuming it. Not just like burning it like consumption, but consuming it, partaking in it. And so you're eating with God in this fellowship offering. How cool is that? Hey, I want... And, and think about it. We have that same offering today. When we eat a meal and we give thanks, we say, Lord, we want you to be a part of this meal. We want to eat with you. We want you to be a part of our table. And so he says there, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? They're eating the same meal with God. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? They were, remember, they were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so they could eat that because God made that meat. Them offering it to an idol and eating it with an idol and then taking a portion and selling it at a discounted rate, it didn't change the meat at all. There was nothing wrong with the meat. It's not really anything. We have freedom to eat those things. He says, rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they're not just sacrificing them to a little wooden idol. Behind each one of those idols, there was actually a demon. Do you not know that when you serve something, it causes you to give your heart, soul, mind, and strength to it. There are demonic forces in the heavenly realms that are actually behind that idol. He says, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And he makes it very clear, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, drinking of his, uh, the, the symbolically drinking of his, his blood, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? So when we serve other gods, God is jealous over us. It would be like a young couple that just got married, okay? Now we are the bride of Christ. Imagine you just got married, you're on your honeymoon, and you get home from your honeymoon, and you you're go home from work one day and your, your wife isn't there. She's gone. She's at someone else's house. And she's eating with some other man by herself. And it's not her dad. You know, it's, it's not her brother. It's someone else that has stirred her affections. And we provoke the Lord to jealousy by putting other things in, ahead of him. If your wife puts some other man ahead of you in order of importance, it makes us jealous, right? Now, sometimes it's for the wrong reasons because it is their dad or their brother or something else. But the idea is, is that God is our husband. And sometimes we put other things in front of him and he looks at it like idolatry, but also adultery. And so we have to be very careful about what we serve. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So I'm going to move ahead here, but he's, he's basically saying you have to choose whose side you're on. See, though we think 
that we have the freedoms to eat or to do or to be a part of anything we want, right? But what the Lord says is, yes, as long as it, number one, doesn't stumble your brother or sister in Christ. If it's going to cause someone else to sin, then maybe you need to give up that freedom. And number two, as long as it doesn't draw your affections or your first place in your heart away from God to serve other things. Because though we think sometimes I've got the freedom to do this, what he's going to say is, all things are lawful for me. I'm free. I can't do anything to add to my salvation. But there are some things that I will partake in or that I could do in my life that actually will cause me to sin and I won't even realize it. They'll cause me to draw my attention away from God and to other things. And so he says there in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful for me. I'm free in Christ. I'm free from the law of sin and death. I no longer have to fulfill a list of requirements to be right in the sight of God. Jesus paid it all. He says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. If I'm a runner, I can eat whatever I want. But some of the things I eat, they may not be helpful for me to win the race. I could eat Krispy Kreme donuts all day long. But when I go to run the race, I'm going to be full of empty carbs. I'm going to have extra weight that will hinder me from running the race as well as I would have had I eaten things that were good for me. He says, but not all things, excuse me, he says it twice. And anytime something's repeated, it's for emphasis. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. This isn't about me anymore. It's not about helping me win the race, but not all things strengthen other believers. Not all things strengthen my faith and not all things help others that are around me. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now that flies in the face of everything that we're taught in our culture. Everything that we're taught is, hey, you worry about yourself, let everybody else worry about themselves. But what Jesus says, what Paul writes, is he says, let no one seek his own benefit, but each one the other's well-being. Therefore, verse 25, eat whatever is... And Okay, so before I start reading this, the last section of this chapter is really where the rubber meets the road. In light of all that Paul's been saying in the last few chapters, he says, here's how you should conduct yourselves in your culture. You can't just pull yourself out and say, I'm just going to be by myself, worry about my own thing. You can't just avoid idolatry because it's going on around you. Now, we don't have, like the Corinthians did, people sacrificing to idols in a religious sense. But we do have people sacrificing to idols. They sacrifice their children. They sacrifice their, their families. They sacrifice their testimony of the Lord. And they do it all in the name of success. They do it all in the name of saving a buck. They will compromise in all kinds of areas. They'll serve all kinds of other gods and then say, but I'm a follower of Jesus. But if you look at their life, you can see what they're really following. And we can do the same thing. We can say, I follow Jesus. And people can look at our lives, even unbelievers, can look at our lives and go, no, you don't. You follow your pocketbook. You're worried about that bottom line. And I confess to you that that is a struggle for me. And God had to break me of that. My bottom line, where I was comfortable with living, I was trusting in my checkbook. And it took my wife coming along, who didn't ever have a whole lot, to go, 
Wow. That's, that's, that's your safety net? Seriously? <laughs> Apparently my wife before Christ was even living more, by more faith than I was. But my point is, we can trust in other things and not even realize it. So Paul is going to say here, here's how you need to conduct yourself amongst non-believers and amongst believers. Verse 25. I wrote this, so I need to make sure I read it. How do I, as a Christian, find balance in what I'm free to do, because Christ has paid it all, and yet live in a way that keeps me from being tempted to sin myself, and live in a way that keeps me from stumbling my brother or sister in Christ while I exercise my freedoms that God's given me. Well, what I wrote down, or what it says in verse 24 is, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Think about others first. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So that meat that you can buy at a discounted rate, the idol doesn't change it. Verse 27 says, But if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner, and you want to go, eat whatever's set before you. They're going to buy the, the idol meat. It's okay. Eat whatever's set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Don't even ask where it came from. Just eat it. Give thanks to the Lord for it. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you. You don't want to spoil them. And for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. He says, conscience, I say, not your own conscience, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? You say, well, why can't I just eat it? Why is my freedom judged by someone else's beliefs? He says, but if I, for, if I partake with thanks, then why do people speak evil of me for the food over which I give thanks? I'm giving thanks to God. I'm eating it to his glory. He says, that's not the point. We don't want to stumble others. Verse 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink, here's the measuring line, whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of God. He says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. And here's what he says, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Why am, is the ultimate reason to give up my right or my freedom as a believer? So that others might benefit, so that others might receive advantage and be saved. That they could see Jesus living in us. So I'm going to give an example of that. But that word there, profit, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That word profit means seeking others' benefit, seeking others' advantage. It is to their advantage if we'll lay down our freedoms so that they can see Jesus living in us. So Paul closes there, and unfortunately chapter 11 starts, but it really shouldn't. The chapters aren't divinely inspired, just the words. But people went in there and they put the chapters and the verses. But my uh, conclusion is that verse 1 of chapter 11 really should have been a part of the last section. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So all these things I've taught you, it's not something I came up with. It's something that Jesus has shown me is important. So he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So how can we imitate him? Where did Christ willingly lay down his rights so that many would be benefited? 
Well, we've seen it. He laid down his life. But even before he laid down his life, there was a high priest that spoke about him giving up his rights. So in John chapter 11, in verse 45, we see the passage where Jesus was, uh, he was doing miracles. He was being used by God. They were seeing the signs and the wonders he did. And many people were starting to believe that he was the Messiah that they were looking for. And it says there, in verse 45 of chapter 11 of John, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered together a council. They came up with a committee. Imagine that in a church. Something needed to happen, and so they came up with a committee. See, committees aren't always good, right? (laughs) So they started a committee, and the chief priests and the Pharisees did this. And they said, what shall we do? For this man, speaking of Jesus, works many signs. He's doing these miraculous signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh no, right? They're all going to believe in Jesus. So of course, we've got to stop him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. See, there's that desire. Their desire was to have their own nation. And because of that, they said, Jesus is going to get in the way of that. So let's kill him. See, their own desire enticed them and drew them away from the plan of God to deliver the world from sin and death. They were supposed to be a light into the world, the Israelites. But because they had a desire to be their own nation and to worry about themselves... They sought to kill Jesus. Verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. He's saying this to the the committee. He says, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider this, that it is expedient, and that word is the same word used for profit, it's to our benefit, it's to our advantage, it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Even this non-believer said, it's expedient, it's profitable if this Jesus will die and the rest of our nation would benefit from it. I love this. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. In other words, he was the mouthpiece of God just for a moment there, that Jesus would die for the nation and not just for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. It would be a benefit, it would be a profit, it would be to the advantage of the people who would believe on him and all those who would live after them and believe in Jesus in the same way. So, my conclusion, in order to imitate Christ, we need to be willing to lay down our desires that can lead to sin in order that the advantage of others would be realized. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he made it white as snow. He washed me, he cleansed me. But he could not do that unless he laid down his right as the rightful heir to the king, heir to the throne. He gave it up. When he was enticed in the wilderness after his baptism, he was drawn away to the wilderness. And Satan said, if you will bow down to me, I'll give you your kingdom right now. And Jesus said, I have to deal with sin first. He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
He said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not know the plan of God. He used the word of God to put off the idolatry. He was tempted just as we are, yet without ever giving in to that temptation. And because he never gave in to the temptation, we benefit. We profit. So in the same way, we have this example. And we can also give up our rights, give up our freedoms to imitate Jesus for the benefit of others. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Paul. We thank you that Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, would give up his rights, would give up every freedom, would give up the the greatest digs ever in heaven and come down to be with us, to let us kill him so that we could benefit for our advantage. Lord, help us to see the things in our lives that we serve and worship that draw us and entice us away from you. Help us to put those things away and to serve you and you alone. And as a result of that, Lord, show your heart for your people and and bless our lives. Help us to walk in your blessing, to obtain eternal life, but also to experience abundant life here so that others would see our relationship with you and want to have that same communion, that same fellowship, that we have with you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for communicating these examples, these warnings, these teachings by your word through the pen of these people. And I pray that each one of us would, by Paul's teaching here, lean in, that we would listen and pay close attention so that we are not disqualified from running the race and running it in a way that brings you glory. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah,